0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. "'Till I might see what was good for the children of man "'to do under heaven during the days of their life. "'I made great works. "'I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. "'I made myself gardens and parks "'and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. "'I made myself pools from which to water "'the forests of growing trees. "'I brought male and female slaves, slaves "'and had slaves who were born in my house. "'I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, "'more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem.' I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart with no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. The second is also Ecclesiastes uh, 9, 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going.
1: Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> Greetings, Merry Christmas. I can say Merry Christmas, right? I I never know when to actually say Merry Christmas because some people are like, man, you, it's just too early for Merry Christmas, but I feel like, you know, we're 1st of December, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, great, let's get into it. My name's Andrew. Andrew, Andrew Tran, I'm one of the elder candidates here, if this is your first time here, welcome, Merry Christmas to you, um, thank you for coming in, uh, if you are regular here, also welcome to you too, um, 24 sleeps to Christmas Day, how nuts is that? That is nuts. Who's who's banging out Mariah Carey right now? Got a few. Not just uh, my Mariah is still kind of f- f- like frozen. She needs to like defrost a little bit. But yeah, um, we're we in this series called Common Sense for the Silly Season, um, and I was thinking like, when does the silly season actually start? Now, now. it starts now. Um, for some people, it starts now. For some people, it's the post-work kind of season. It's kind of like Christmas, New Year's kind of time. Um, for me, I would argue that I'm already in the middle of my silly season. My calendar has been jam-packed for the last like month already. Last week, I had schoolies, green team stuff. Week before, I had a wedding. Next week, I had a wedding. I've got catch-ups and Celebrations, end of year parties, work, Christmas functions, um, and for me, like I, if if you know me, I am an ESFJ. That's my Myers Briggs stuff. So what that means essentially is that I thrive on social interaction, <laughs> but even I find it it's a, it's sometimes a bit much for me. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate that, man. Um, and like when you hear we, I, I, when I talk about my schedule with some of my friends, especially my introvert friends, they're like, man. I hate I hate this time. I hate this silly season. I, I just dread it because they because as introverts, like it's so hard to even just go to like two outings, let alone like sixteen, right? Um, and I was thinking about this when I was preparing for the sermon, and I was thinking especially about you introverts, like how are you gonna hack the season? <laughs> It's 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 actually it's actually a serious question. How are you going to hack it? Because it's it's a hard time. I, I totally get that. And so Jacko actually sent me this video. We're going to watch it in a second. But it's I'm not suggesting that this is a solution to the problem. But it's a clever clever marketing tool to suggest how to deal with this silly season. Let's roll the tape.
2: It's the most wonderful time. For a beer When your guests come along And you hear that ding-dong Oh, you should have run clear It's the most wonderful time For a beer It's the beer's busiest season of all Workplace get ups and the random hookups we all choose to ignore. It's the best, busiest season of all. There'll be presents for wrapping, credit cards you'll be maxing, and traffic jams in the car park. There'll be last minute shopping with no sign of stopping. It's really hard to give up. It's the most wonderful time for a beer Beer, 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 beer. And that fat guy in red, he takes all of the cred as if elves made his gear. It's the most wonderful time for a beer There'll be fights in the kitchen about politics and religion Oh God, here comes your racist auntie Their second cousin Linda at lunch swiping Tinder Finding out where she'd rather be Rather be It's the most wonderful time for a beer Oh, you know things are dire when they're playing Mariah Thank God the end's near It's the most wonderful time Yes, the most wonderful time It's the most wonderful time For a peace. Here's to a wonderful Christmas From the Carlton Drive Christmas Orchestra
1: this sermon is not sponsored by Carl Dry, if you're wondering. <laughs> it's ironic, though, the, an alcoholic beverage company is producing goods to help, you would think, to help with the, the vibrancy of the silly season, and advertising, more or less, is not so much about festive cheers, but a means to cope with it. And it's jokingly saying, crack open a cold one because it's a good stress reliever, rather than crack open a cold one with your mates. But that's what we're talking about in today's sermon, on common sense for the silly season. And I'm praying and hoping that as we we navigate this, um, that you'll be encouraged and you'll know how to kind of navigate the silly season. In the last few weeks, we've talked about how to deal with difficult people, uh, how to cope with consumerism, um, how to show hospitality. And today, uh, we are talking about how to eat, drink, and be merry. And I, I could have used this message last week because last week I, I was at, down at Schoolies and there was a bunch of 17- and 18-year-olds celebrating, engaging in risk-taking behaviours we, were in what we would call challenging social circumstances. And of course today we are going to talk about alcohol, but it's not just that. The question I really want to ask is how should we relate to the festive Christmas season celebrations where there's lots of food and drink? How should we eat Drink and be merry. I'm just going to do a quick poll. Who will be drinking over Christmas? Okay, that's probably about like seven, like eighty percent of us. Maybe eighty-five. That's quite a lot of us. Who? Maybe a better question. Who Who won't be drinking over Christmas? Okay. Okay. Great. Um, I sometimes don't know how to answer that question because I can't actually drink that much alcohol. Um, if you look at me, my, my, my figure is pretty small, I'm pretty sure I don't have a lot of mass in me. I can't hack alcohol. I have about two and a half drinks, and I'm buzzing after that. Um, but I'm, I'll be eating for sure, and all of us will be eating for sure, and all of us have, I can guarantee you all of us, have some sort of celebration to go to. Partly the reason why I want to answer this question, how do we relate to eating and drinking and celebration, is that Uh, for a few reasons. In Australia, we have this interesting relationship with food and drink. We are in a first world country, we live in abundance. Um, But I've said this before, um, as a physio in the new year, I see people with overuse injuries right at the start because they're trying to lose weight from the Christmas season. (laughs) Um, More more seriously though, in Australia, we do have a drinking issue. uh, there was, the Australian Alcohol and Drug Foundation have this webpage for the silly season, and, saying, and they say that December is the busiest month for paramedics, hospitals, and police when they're responding to incidents of assault and uh, relating to alcohol, alcohol in, intoxication. And the last working day before Christmas, statistics show that 50%, uh, there's a 50% increase in ambulance attendance for alcohol intoxication. Not just due to binge drinking, but sadly, many drink to mask feelings of loneliness and despair during a time that is traditionally seen as one to be spent with loved ones. Not to potential the potential outcomes of celebrating just a little bit too much, right? Some of us, well, oh, we like to party. We like we like to party, right? Over and over, in the silly season, we have catch-ups with friends, work work, uh, shows, end-of-year parties, and that may, for some of us, um, end up in mild embarrassment, and some of us may lead to a loss of even potentially public decency and have some interesting social ramifications. Um, Hopefully not here, but if that's you, you're welcome here as well, we still love you. Um, Seeing all these outcomes, it raises some questions. As common sense for the silly season, should I abstain or should I imbibe? Should I get in on it? Can I stuff myself eating food over Christmas or is that not a good idea? Can I engage in festivities? Should I engage in festivities? And if so, how, how should I do that? What does the Bible have to say about eating, drinking and being merry? And to explore this, we are going to cover three points. The first, if you're a note-taker, these are my three points here. The first one is the goodness of creation. The second point is the hopelessness of self-indulgence. And the third and final point is the satisfaction of Christ, a.k.a. the actual good life. The goodness of creation, the hopelessness of self-indulgence, and the satisfaction of Christ, a.k.a. the the actual good life. Let's pray and see what God has for us, eh? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, that by your word we know the depths of your goodness. Uh, Father, we pray that you guide us tonight. Challenge challenge us where we need challenging. Motivate us to live as your people. Pray that um, as we look at your scriptures today, that you uh, are our cornerstone, you are our hope. Help us to remember that, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Believe it or not, uh, the idea of eating, drinking, and being merry both is and isn't a uh, biblical principle. It both is and isn't a biblical principle, because the phrase eat, drink, and be merry, as far as I understand, it actually comes from the Bible, but we'll come back to that point in a second. But it also isn't a biblical principle, depending on what you mean by it. Um, if you ask someone off the street, what does it mean to eat, drink, and be merry, it sounds something like carpe diem. It sounds like seize the day, don't worry about tomorrow, YOLO. Should Christians be really engaging in something like that? So when we hear about festivities that include food and drink, especially, some of us, quote unquote, religious types, have various reactions from healthy scepticism to emphatic no's. And potentially, I think for some of us here, when we hear the word booze, we're a bit triggered by it. When we hear the word alcohol, we're like, nah, I don't want to do that. When we, and even when we hear the word party, it feels like, oh, I, don't want to, I really don't want to do that. And I would, I would argue, though, that some of us potentially... May have some overcautious, reductionistic approaches to what God has to say about eating, drinking, and being merry. And I can understand some of our reservations here. You've seen the destructive effects of excessive food and drink consumption that has on people, right? You've seen some disastrous outcomes from being a little bit too merry. It may, Or perhaps your Christian conscience doesn't allow you to participate in these festivities, and you may feel like participating in it will be a stumbling block for you or for your fellow Christians. And that's fair enough. Those are perfectly valid reasons. I, I respect that, absolutely. But, but, the Bible gives a much more complex answer to this, to eating, to drinking, and being merry. Because the Bible doesn't give wholesale rejection to food drinks, and I dare say, partying. And which leads to our first point, the goodness of creation. You see, these, fest- these festivities, this eating, drinking, this- these are all good things. Food is good. Drink is good. Celebrating, being merry is good. And how do we know that? Well, page one of your Bible. Page one of your Bible, the opening chapter of Genesis, describes a creative God by his sheer sovereign will and power and by the mere breath of his utterance. He ordered from nothing something, the great cosmos, sun, stars, earth, moon, skies, waters, land, animals, and then he makes mankind. Mankind, unlike anything else, in his own Trinitarian image, he makes mankind. and he says something to mankind. He says this in Genesis 1:28 to 31. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was, and it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and, uh, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. From the start, from the get-go, we see that God commands us to be fruitful. He commands humanity to be fruitful, to subdue, and to have dominion. And now people think when we think about this verse, we think about it's just about having babies, right? It's just about having babies. And that, but that's actually an oversimplification of what this passage is talking about. It's the, what we call the cultural mandate. It is to build. It is to create. It is to make something of creation. It is to make cities, buildings, make culture, create technology. To take creation and to make it into something more. And that includes making food and drink. But we turn the page over and we know what happens. Adam and Eve, they eat something they were told not to eat. The one thing that God told them, "Don't you had one job, don't do this. Don't eat this or you will surely die. But they did. They did so, having been deceived, and they, believed, and they believed they knew better than God. And as a result, the curse of sin enters into the cosmos and fractures everything. It fractures how humanity relates to God, it fractures how humans relate to other humans, and it fractures how humans relate to creation. And here is where our relationship with food and drink and celebration get distorted. Once, what once was a good relationship with food and drink is now broken. But interestingly enough, what happens to Adam and Eve? Did they die? Did they, Well, yes and no. They didn't die immediately. But they are driven out of the garden and they die spiritually because they experience separation from God. But in terms of physical death, they are actually physically spared. In the face of a holy, perfect God, God had the absolute right to obliterate them. God's holiness will not stand for his image, his sacred image, to be abused and desecrated. God will not tolerate the stain of sin. But yet, yet, despite this, and this is important, despite this, instead of starting over, God is patient with humanity and lets them keep breathing. In fact, God isn't just patient. For the rest of the Bible, we see God is kind and compassionate towards humanity. He even blesses people who outright reject him. He blesses humanity with things that they don't reserve, like the air they breathe, or the beauty of sunsets and sunrises, the awe and majesty of looking at the wonders of the universe, the joy of basking at the wonders of creation, the gift of relationships, the gift of friendships, the gift of love and joy and romance and sex, and not to mention food to eat and wine to drink, not just for sustenance, but for pleasure and the ability to revel and celebrate. Humanity does not deserve anything good from God. What humanity deserves in the face of a holy God is righteous, just wrath. But because God is so good, because God is so good and patient, he's given his rebellious image bearers these good gifts of common grace. These good gifts of common grace. Jesus reiterates God's goodness in in these gifts in Matthew 5.45. I'll read it to you here. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Paul reiterates this as well when he talks to the people, the people of Lystra. Something, he tells them something similar. In Acts 14, he says, uh, it says this, uh, verses 16 and 17. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And God has done the same for us. He's given all of us these same common gifts, common gifts of grace. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, he's granted all these things to enjoy despite our rebellion towards him. And because of this, we can't simply reject eating or drinking or celebrations on the basis that we might deem them "quote unquote bad." Scripture would argue that Quite the opposite. As Christians, we're not Gnostics, right? We, we don't think that physical things are bad and only spiritual things are good. We think God made us as physical human beings and he gave us physical things to enjoy. We can't demonize physical gifts of God of, because his gifts are good. In First Timothy 4.4, 4, it says this, For everything God cr- created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving." God's creation, God's creation is good even in our sin-corrupted world. God in his goodness, God in his compassion decided to continue to give you, you, and you these gifts, these gifts of common grace even though we rebelled against him. Why? To show us how glorious he is and how good he is. That speaks massively to God's character. So you might be thinking, well, if eating and drinking is all good, I'll just do it all right. I'll just have all the things. I'll have all the food. I'll have all the drink. So good. Well, it's not so simple. It's not as simple as that. Because sin has fractured the perfection of the cosmos. And we experience this corruption in how we relate to God's gifts of common grace. Sin has corrupted our hearts. It's, it's, it's disordered our desires. We attempted to make good things into God things. And we see this all over Scripture. I probably, if you look at the Old Testament, it's seen in idol worship. Right? And for today, we don't really have idol worship, but it's just as bad. We see it in the case of food and drink, where we prioritize its satisfaction over God being our satisfaction. Sin has corrupted our relationship to good things, and this is often expressed as self-indulgence, which leads into our second point, the hopelessness of self-indulgence. In our culture, you might have heard this thing, this, this phrase, you can never have too much of a good thing. Who's heard of that before? A few people have heard of that. And when you think about this, I think you can have something that too much of something that's too good, so much so to your own detriment. Hear me out for a second. detriment not just in terms of your physical health. And we can talk about alcohol abuse and the obesity epidemic, one where one in four adults, Australians, are obese. We can go into the stats, but I'm not going to. But we know that too much of a good thing can be detrimental physically to us, mentally, socially, emotionally, and particularly spiritually. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this idea either. Our reading today is in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. It talks about this. It talks about self-indulgence in creation and in things. If you don't know, Ecclesiastes is written by a person named The Author, and the person who's informing him is someone called The Preacher. It's written to God's people at a, at a particular time and uh, for everyone between royalty and to the, the farmer on, on the ground. And we think the preacher is someone named King Solomon. And if it is King Solomon, we know that he was a very prosperous guy, he was a very wealthy king, and he was very wise. But yet, I think he was a little bit bored because he goes about testing how to satisfy self-indulgence, how satisfying it really is. It says this in Ecclesiastes 2, 1-2. In, I said in my heart, this is the preacher, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, this was also vanity. I said, with, I said of laughter, it is mad and of, and of pleasure. What use is it? Now, if you had a free ticket to have as much, uh, as much of the best food you can think of, um, like I remember going to the U.S. and I spent and I, like I had a, a steak meal that was more money than I've probably spent ever on a on a, on a on a meal like even for like four people. I thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm when in Rome, when it's just not really Rome, it's New York. I'll just do it, right? If I had that. Uh, all over and over and over, and this was this was like a this was like a ribeye that was 21 day age, smoked, and uh, it was cooked medium rare, and it had like a really nice glass of wine. And behind me was a picture of Liam Neeson sitting, who sat in my seat. Legit, that actually happened. Like this was a fancy place. Solomon is saying, "I test you with pleasure for yourself," and he says, of pleasure, what use is it?" I had some damn good food. <laughs> and he's saying, what use is that? If you could have that every day for the rest of your life, what use is that? The word vanity here, the word in Hebrew, it's the word hevel. Say hevel with me. Hevel, yep. Some translations say it is meaningless. It is best translated as the word vapor or smoke. The image of hevel is this image of smoke where you, it looks solid, but when you, when you try to grab it, it slips right through your fingers. It's futile. And the preacher is going to say here, all of these things, following things, all these following things are in Ecclesiastes 2, 3 to 8, bear with me here. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart is still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both of men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. King Solomon was a baller. King Solomon, if you don't know what a baller is, a baller is an urban term for a basketball player who's making, two, he's making millions and millions of dollars, and is now, but it now refers to pretty much ultra-wealthy people who have too much money on their hands. That was Solomon. He was the first baller. He see, see, he talks about wine, he talks about building grand houses, he talks about looking at the results of his garden. He had owned so many possessions, more than you could ever own. Makes Donald Trump wishes he was Solomon. And in particular, he owns who owns singers? Who owns singers? Both men and women, and many concubines to the delight of sons of man. I don't know what you parties you can throw, but if you have your own singers, your own singers, you can throw a party. Not to mention, we know that Solomon had a a harem of three hundred concubines. Makes the wolf of Wall Street look like a poor peasant on the street. You want a party? Solomon knew how to party. But guess what he says. He keeps saying this, and he says this in verses nine and ten. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Solomon sought to be the greatest. By all measures, all measures. If he wanted it, he had it. He had unlimited power. He did whatever he wanted. Solomon was a pleasure seeker like no other, and he says this in verse eleven. Then I considered all; I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained out of the sun. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Fleeting, futile, hopelessness, hevel. It doesn't sound like hopeful words or phrases, does it? I'm gonna put a pin in that for a second. Gonna okay, switch gears for a little bit. Let's talk neuroscience. Next one here. Yeah. Um, this thing here is this is a brain, as you can see. Uh, what I'm looking at here is what we call the re- a, a particular reward system. It's called the mesocortical limbo, uh, uh, cortical limbic system, uh, reward system. Essentially, what it means it's um, it's a group of neural structures that essentially help you with motivation. Right? It's not just for pleasure or positive emotions such as joy, euphoria, and ecstasy. It does those things absolutely. It's the bl- it's the blue bits there. But it's actually very important. This system is very important in your brain because it actually helps us learn what is good for us. It helps us generate motivation. So on the screen here, it says that, that thing that says VTA. That is your ventral te- uh, tegmental area. That releases a chemical called dopamine. Right? Dopamine then goes to this thing called the nucleus accumbens, just over there. Right? And your, nu- your nucleus accumbens is the centre that regulates incentive. So, for example, how this works is that, okay, I want water. Great. You get some water. Your VTA sends off some dopamine to your nucleus accumbens, and that produces uh, the feeling of, like, ah, water, the reward. And so the next time you want water, your body wants water, it creates the desire for water. You get water. You get that same dopamine hit at the nucleus accumbens. Ah, water. Same thing with food. Food, dopamine, ah, food. The thing is, when you have alcohol, or certain drugs, like opioids, or sex, it sends a bit more dopamine to the nucleus accumbens here, and it feels really good. For those of us who know, who have had these experiences, we know that's why it feels good, that's why we like to do these things, right? But the problem is that when you have too much, when you have too much, so for example, let's say you do lots of alcohol, right? Your VTA, your, your, your ventral tegmental area, sends off a, a heap of dopamine to your nucleus accumbens, and your nucleus accumbens is flooded with this dopamine, it's just, it's just pinging, yeah, boy, it's, just, it's going nuts, and it feels really, 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 really good but your brain tries to regulate it, so it builds up a tolerance. And so the next time you do the same thing, to get the same high, you need to do more. And this is where obsession turns into addiction. This is where obsession turns into addiction. We give drugs and alcohol a bad rap, because, but we think about it, heroin was actually used as pain relief once. But this is, it doesn't have to be just drugs or alcohol. It can happen to anything that makes us feel good. Eating, winning, gambling, sex, pornography, and even social media and video games. If you want to know some really frightening statistics, I would, I would challenge you. Google scholar of this, the, the impact of social media on the Meso-Olympic system. I dare you. Too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And that's the thing about self-indulgence in the good gifts of God. When we distort God's good things and indulge in them, it's not just harmful or destructive for us, but we miss out. We we miss out on enjoying the goodness of God himself. Self-indulgence in creation Always, always fails to live up to its promise. Self-indulgence is to a wanting, or a wanting of a f- f- wanting or fulfillment from something that it just, it just cannot give you that. And today we might be just talking about food and drink, yes, but the root of idolizing this city season has the potential to be destructive, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually and has the potential to leave you high and dry. Sounds a bit scary, I know. What hope is there, right? You might be thinking, what does this mean, Tran? On one hand, you tell me that that food and drink and celebration are good gifts to be enjoyed, and on the other hand, you tell me, like, don't overdo it because you'll end up as a a self-indulgent. Is it just a matter of balance then? What do we do? Well, yes and no is a matter of balance. God's good gifts are not designed to terminate on themselves. Like a parent who gives a gift to the child, to a child. The love of the recipient is not meant to end up on the gift, but it's meant to end up on the parent, right? How many of you born a gift for someone before? And um, you give it to them, you've done your research, uh, and, you, and you see that they love it, right? They love it, they're, they're, they're playing with it all the time, or they're using it all the time, but they don't say thank you. Has that happened, or is that just me? I feel like that's a common experience. People just terminate their love on the gift and not the giver. And it kind of hurts, right? It hurts a little bit. God doesn't owe humanity anything. He doesn't owe you or me anything. We, by nature and choice, are deserving of his justice. But instead, instead, he gives us pleasures like food and drink and joy, the joy of celebrations. Why? He wants humanity to know that he is good. He wants to know that. He wants us to know. He wants humanity to know that He is kind, that He is patient, that He is merciful, that He is compassionate, and that He loves us beyond, we know, beyond what we know. He wants us to show His glory through creation, and He wants us to give us time and life on earth so that we might have time to repent and turn to Him. And that leads us to our third point here, the satisfaction of Christ, the actual Good life. God wants to give us time on earth so we can repent to him and repent and turn to him. God has given us his son as the ultimate gift of grace. We know that here. We live under the curse of sin, and we need, but we need to put something in, our hope in something else that is not, that is, um, that is not of this earth. God knew that nothing under the sun will be able to, to fulfill our, the longings of our heart. He knew that our striving uh, or how much we would improve ourselves would make us feel. He knew that well, that would make us feel. He knew that um, if, if, we, if we tried to put all our value in and how hard we worked or how much we gave to charity, that would not make us, give us the longings of our soul. He knew that no matter how smart or wise we were, it, that would never fulfill us. He knew that sex, money, power, drink, wine, these things are vanity, meaningless, hevel. But in our hopelessness, you know what did God did? He gave his son. He gave his son to become a man, to pay a debt that we could never pay, to dine across, and he exchanged the value of his life for ours so that we would be called children of God. So that we may be his children. And even though death, death comes for us all. He conquered death. And he did so that, so that whoever trusted in him would be able to join him now and forever. This is why Jesus is called the spring of living water and the bread of life. In Jesus, we find life and life to the full. He gives us eternal satisfaction, even when life is challenging. Even when life is challenging. So if we hold on to Christ Christ in our challenging circumstances, we can say that he is enough. We don't have to put our hope into trying to make it. We don't have to put our hope into trying to make our lives the best it can be. The quote-unquote good life that's presented in our world it plagues on our fear of missing out. But the the good life of the world, the the, the good life that the world presents, pales in comparison to the to, to what God has for us in Jesus. And that's what is an offer for you today. Like Kanye West, we too can graduate from the good life and find the actual good life. We can actually find our soul satisfaction in declaring that Jesus is king. And ironically, because we've been approved by God in trusting and believing and knowing Jesus, we can, we can be not just content, but we can actually enjoy all that he has given us, especially in this silly season. In our second reading, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 9 tells us us this too. Verse 7, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. The imperative here is to go, do this. The preacher is telling us to eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because God has already approved of you. Now, this sounds like a license to Gets sloshed, right? But it's not what he's talking about here. The preacher is saying that God takes pleasure in you taking pleasure. Because when we as Christians realize our worth is in Jesus and that everything is a gift from God, we want to steward that well. We want to steward everything that He's given us, right? And we want to enjoy it the way it's meant to be enjoyed. But God is is glorified in our enjoyment of Christ, but he's also glorified in in our proper enjoyment of his good gifts. That's why you have verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where it says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. The preacher goes on in verse eight in Ecclesiastes nine. He says, let your garments be always white, always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments and oil and perfume were used as a, as, a joy, as a symbol of joy and festivity. And interestingly, the imperative here is for the garments is always, it's more evidence to, 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 as to how serious the Bible wants us to enjoy life. Not because we must, but because God has already approved of us. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, it says this. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, And for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. God has given us good gifts, not just food, not just drink, joy, festivities, but work and relationships too. If you are in Christ, if you, if you are a Christian, no, no matter what your lot in life is, you can experience the actual good life as God intended it to be. Because we have all we need in Jesus. Everything, everything on top of that is just a bonus. Everything on top of that is just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And verse, these verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is not an exhaustive list but extends to all of God's gifts for us. And although death may be the great equalizer as it comes for all of us, for the Christian, it makes us realize how precious each moment is. Death makes us realize how precious each moment is. And we are able to roll up thanksgiving to God who has blessed us so abundantly in more ways than we can ever imagine. So what does that mean for us? Okay, Tran, you've been talking about for like this for like 35, 40 minutes. What does that mean for us now? Okay. We know that creation is good. We know that self-indulgence is hopeless. We know that Jesus is more than sufficient for us. Now what? Well, I wanna leave you with three applications here. Firstly, I want you to worship God and enjoy his gifts. Now you might be here tonight and you might be thinking, I'm not quite sure how to, how do I like, handle my eating or my drinking or being merry. And Maybe I'm very aware of this. Some of you may have some issues with eating and drinking. Some of you struggle with it. You, you, you don't like eating, or you eat. You struggle with eating, or some of us have issues with alcohol. Um, and you might feel might feel like, man, Andrew's telling me I need to go eat and drink, and like, oh, I don't know it's not. It's it's hard. I I get it. I get it. And that's okay. That's okay. In fact, if you struggle with, if food is a vice for you, if alcohol is a vice for you, I want you to know that God knows your struggle. God, God knows your struggle. If you are in Christ, know this, though. If you are in Christ, know this. Your worth is not, is not dependent on how well you regulate your diet or how well you regulate your alcohol, but your worth is found in the finished work of Jesus. Take heart, your identity for first and foremost is that you are his and his alone. And that in your struggle, he is with you. The imperative from Ecclesiastes 9 is not a command that you must be happy and enjoy life all the time, in fact, in the in the despairs of death and the hopelessness, the preacher tells us that we can enjoy a gift, God's gifts because why? God has approved of us. One commentator said this: Ecclesiastes does not advocate hedonism, but he advocates contentment as part of God's gift, and that gift is the outflow of an assurance of acceptance by Him. For some of us, we might be thinking, well, what does this mean to, you, you, okay, you're, te- you're telling me I need to love life, but the world's passing away, and how am I supposed to love life if I'm meant to love, live for God and enjoy Christ first and, first and foremost? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, David Gibson, in his, uh, in his book, Living Life Backward, uh, a commentary on Ecclesiastes, um, I'm gonna read just the whole segment here, it's, it's great. He talks about this. He says, in the creative world, in the created world, you can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. The man who makes sex his God and who who worships him discovers that actually what is normal and pleasurable soon becomes inadequate, not enough, and he becomes chained to a path whereby he begins to enjoy only perversion, which of course is no enjoyment. The woman who makes her family her God and who worships her children discovers that they fail her and disappoint her and do not achieve all that she wanted them to achieve, and so she is left empty and unfulfilled. You can fill in the blanks with every good thing in this world. But when we worship God and trust Him and love Him and walk with Him, we, what we find is that he is not an old man in the sky who makes us bow down before him in a cold white room while he sits on the throne waiting to zap us when we get it wrong? No. What we discover is that God is like the host who welcomes us into his kingdom and to the most lavish of banquets, banquets for us to enjoy. Worship God and enjoy his gifts. Second application, RSVP to the best party that is yet to come. Isaiah 25, 6 says this On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of, well, of aged well refined. This Christmas, we remember that Jesus came to be with us to, live with us, to live with us, to die for us, and he rose again to ensure that we get to enjoy him forever. God has given us His common grace, but God has also given us the gift of His amazing saving grace. You can't do anything to earn it; it's for free. It's offered for you right now. This is not this is not an MML program or whatever it is. It's 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 free. Freedom from bondage of sin. Freedom from the need to perform. Full acceptance by God, of your Creator satisfaction of your soul, the truly good life, and the ability to dwell and enjoy God forever, where at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he's offering the feast to end all feasts. If you're not a Christian, or even if, even if, you, if you say you're a Christian, but you're not sure what it means to be one, or if you're trying to be one by living well, quote unquote, this free gift of grace, this free gift of grace is, is for you. RSVP to the best party that is yet to come. Come enjoy God now and forever. All that is, that is needed is for you to accept his invitation and believe in the, in the finished work of Jesus for you. I, I, I beg you, RSVP to this party. You don't want to miss out. Thanks, man. Third, and Lastly, go as the sun came. Son of Man came. Go as the Son of Man came. He came eating and drinking. Again, I'm just going to quote a whole bunch of uh, words here from uh, Tim Chester's "A Meal with Jesus" because he says it way better than I could ever say it. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence: the Son of Man, the Son of Man came. Dot dot dot. The Son of Man came not to be served, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first two statements are of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? Eating and drinking. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. Jesus ate and drank with people, with sinners, just like you and me. Why? So that they may know his love. Jesus ate and drank with sinners so they may know his love. He came to seek and save the lost by eating with them, by being with them. May we, may we, may we as City Light Church North Adelaide, this silly season, go as Jesus did, Eating and drinking with other sinners, so that they may know their love. Come, let's let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for. Man, you are God. You are such a good God. Good doesn't even sound like a, an approach, It doesn't even sound like it's um, good enough to to declare how great you are. You are beyond. Your goodness knows no bounds. Help us to revel in your goodness. Help us to live as your children. Help us to see you as the center of our lives. We thank you for the gifts of common grace that you've given us, that they are good. Help us this season to navigate this silly season well. Help us to know uh, what your gifts are, to give you thanks and glory for them, and to point others to your goodness. Help us to prioritize our loves as you first, Help us to um, put away our idolatry of whether it be money or power or things or status. These things are meaningless. You are our meaning, Lord Father. Help that be a reality to us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your amazing grace because there's nothing like it. Again, help that be a reality in our lives. Help us to live knowing that, in light of that. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your love. We thank you for who you are always. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church northadelaide.